0: Have your Bible, turn today to Romans chapter 1. We only have three more sermons left in Romans chapter 1. Unless the Lord changes things, but I think. So Romans 1, and we'll be today in Romans 1, verses 24 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, then you can grab one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew, and that Bible is on page 939. And you're welcome to keep that Bible. It's our gift to you if you don't have your own Bible. Uh, Let's read together, and I'm going to go back to verse 18 and start reading from there just to give us a little bit of context, as this is a section that's about the sinfulness of man and our need for the gospel, and it's a section that's speaking about ungodliness and unrighteousness, and ungodliness that leads to unrighteousness. So we'll start in verse 18, but the sermon passage will be beginning at verse 24, so we'll read all the way through there. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That sets us up for the ungodliness of rejecting the worship of God to then lead into what will be spoken of today, the unrighteousness that flows out of that ungodliness. So our passage for today starts in verse 24. Here it is. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the, cre- the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, last week, I mentioned that the number one God that our current culture would have us to worship is the self. Now, when I say the self, I'm not just talking about the idea of self determination and rejecting authority and being our own boss, that is built into it, that's part of it, but there's something even more than that, and when I say that the God that our culture would have us to worship is the self, we're talking about something that I know that you're familiar with, you might not have even realized is an an error, which is the idea of seeking the inner self, and letting the idea of who you are on the inside Control what you ought to then express on the outside. This idea of the inner self being worshipped, it plays out in this this cultural thing that is just out there. You don't have to go to school to get indoctrinated in it because it's just everywhere. It is the aquarium that we fish are floating around in right now. This idea that everyone should do this process of looking inward to do self-discovery And then once that self-discovery has been done, or even as that self-discovery is ongoing, to then be true to yourself. What you discover on inside, you be true to it. You follow your heart. You let what you find inside guide then your feelings and your words and your actions that express on the outside. The religion of the self, it says that the greatest good is to authentically express one's sense of self. To be real, as they put it, right? To authentically express it. Now, it's a sin against that, that, uh, that religion of the self to suppress one's sense of self. Or to fail to express it. Or to be inauthentic about it. But the major, the deadly mortal sin of the cultural religion of self is for one person to fail to celebrate another person's true, authentic feeling of their inner self. That's kind of what we are in, and you see it all over the place. Like I say, it's just the water we are swimming in. It's the air you breathe. You're not going to be able to get your kids out of this kind of a cultural mindset just by what school you decide to put them in or anything like that, we are all floating in it. And you see it everywhere. So you see it printed on things like toddler T-shirts that say, Be Your Beautiful Self. You see it in things like the Department of Homeland Security's ad campaign for Real ID. Real ID just means you've all got to get a new driver's license sometime in the next couple of years if you wanted to have the right requirements to be able to fly at the airport. But the Homeland Security uh, ad campaign for Real ID is be your Real ID self. It's interesting, isn't it? This, This idea of be your real self, look for your real self, express your authentic self, it is just everywhere and it's assumed. But it leads us to destruction. And the problem with that is that our real self as we were born is sinful and depraved. We were born sinners. If we are seeking to look inside ourselves to figure out what is authentically there, what are our true desires and inclinations and feelings, and what is it that is in me, that is how I was born, that I did not choose, if that is our guide, it is going to guide us into destruction. It is not the path of life. Jesus did not say, follow your heart. He said, you must be born again, All right? That, I, that emphasis on the true identity of the inner self, though, it's, it's not new by any means. There's a fantastic book that just came out earlier this year by Carl Truman, who is a great Presbyterian theologian. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's kind of a heavy book, uh, and, and he's got a lighter version of it that's going to come out next year, and when that comes out, I hope we'll get it into our book nook. But he traces this idea of the self way back. He starts out looking at the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau in the 18th century in France and this idea where in the Industrial Revolution there was a feeling that people were moving from the countryside to the cities and working in factories and he felt that people were losing something of their real selves by going away from the countryside and that that was to be pursued and then it goes into the romantic poets of the 19th century and through, through Darwin and Marx and Freud and various other things that we don't realize are deeply affecting us. But listen, this is not new at all. This has been deeply built into American culture for literally hundreds of years at this point. We, don't, we, we think that all of the aberrations that we have right now are new, and some of them are new in a way, but this idea of authentically expressing yourself well listen to this this is the 1896 confession of H.H. Holmes who was a serial killer in Chicago in the late 1800s Holmes when he was confessing to his crimes he said I was born with the devil in me I could not help the fact that I was a murderer no more than the poet can help the inspiration to sing You see what he's doing there? He's assuming everyone will be able to relate to this idea of the authentic self and expressing it just as part of who you are. And he's saying, well, here's who I am as my authentic self. I am authentically a murderer. And you know what? He's he's right about that. I don't doubt at all that he was born that way. And I don't doubt at all that you and I were born depraved also. I don't doubt that you and I, when we search our own hearts for what was built in from the beginning, if we won't find ugly things. And yet the world would say, no, it's all right, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's okay. And God says, no, being left to those things is a, is a judgment. We say, I was born this way. That's what our culture says. I was born this way should be celebrated. And Jesus says, no, you must be born again or you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The culture says things like, I'm just being true to myself. And the Bible says, put the old self to death and put on the new self that is being remade in the image of Christ. Now, we have here ungodliness leading to unrighteousness. We have the ungodliness of ignoring the God who created the world, failing to worship the God who created the world, And in response to that, here's what it says happens. If you're following in your bulletin, this is the first thing we see in verse 24. This judgment that God would allow sinners to follow their hearts. When God allows sinners to follow their hearts, it is an act of judgment from God. That's what it says in verse 24. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Therefore means because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols, because they refused to worship God. And when it says God gave them up, that's language from the Old Testament. Language from the Old Testament that has to do with one nation coming up against another and God making the decision of who will win the battle. Giving up, God giving them up in the Old Testament means God allowing one nation to be defeated by another nation sometimes to be taken into slavery, sometimes to be completely wiped out. But that's the language that's being used here when God allows people to pursue the genuine, authentic desires of their hearts. It says here that that is a giving them up. It's a judgment from God when God allows sinners to pursue what they think is freedom, what they think is satisfying. The lusts of their hearts. That word there, lusts, you might have different translations of the Bible. It might use a different word than lusts. It is this deep, built-in, consuming desire of the heart. It's a desire of the heart that you're born with, that just expresses itself. Now, I'm going to say there's, there's probably nobody out there who sits down and says to themselves, you know what, I have heard that there are, are people who are kleptomaniacs, who just can't resist going into a store and taking something. And because I've heard that, I want that for myself. And so I'm going to try to stir up in my heart a desire to go into a store and just take things. I doubt that anybody would say that to themselves. But those who have that burning desire, they didn't choose it. They just have it. And there's all kinds of desires like this. I read H.H. Holmes's confession earlier, but you know what the desire is that is built in to just about everybody? is this physical desire. And that's where he starts here. The lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. as if you ever read through the New Testament, if you're not a regular reader of the Bible in a systematic way, I, I, you, you ought to be, all right? And, and as you read through the New Testament, you'll, you'll find, especially in Paul's letters, but elsewhere as, as well, that you come across these lists of sins. And these lists of sins come up in, in different ways for different reasons. And things like, here is the kind of thing that unless you repent, you will perish. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. And at the top of those lists, it seems that it's always sexual, sexual immorality of various kinds. You know, this is the desire of the heart that is, seems so inescapable for so many. And for that reason, so many would say, well, this is a thing where I would just rather give up the fight. I would just rather say to myself, well, this is just who I am. This is just how I was made. This is just a thing that anybody who tells me that I can't indulge in this is just trying to make me miserable and unhappy and to deny my personhood or part of it. But as as we see that, I want you to think of Jesus. Okay? Jesus Christ. Fully man. And fully God. But think of this, fully man. It says in the Bible that he... He endured temptation of of every kind, and yet without sin. Jesus never had any form of that physical gratification. Of that kind of gratification that we, so so many think to themselves, well this is just part of who I am, it is just built into me, I must pursue this. Jesus never indulged it even a little bit. He never indulged it physically, physically. He never indulged it in his words, he never indulged it in his thoughts, and he was absolutely no less of a full human being than any other human being. In fact, he is the perfect model of humanity that fell apart with Adam. He is the new Adam, he is the new humanity, he is the perfect man, and he did not indulge those things. But it says that when, when mankind refuses to worship God, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Now do you hear that? What are they being given over to? The lusts of their hearts. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. This comes from the inner desire of the heart. Now, the idea of following the heart, being authentic to what we feel, to what we've been born with, to what's been built into us, it feels like freedom for a little bit. But it's fake and it's destructive. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That's what it's talking about here. Being given up to that deceitful, sick heart. Boy, it feels like freedom for a second. I bet it feels like freedom to jump off of the edge of the Grand Canyon for a few seconds. But it leads to destruction. That's not freedom. That is slavery to gravity. Indulging the lusts of the heart is not freedom. It is slavery to sin. And it's exactly what Jesus died to pay for and to set us free from. It says in Ephesians 2 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. This is the standard ever since Adam's sin in the garden, what we have inherited and been born with, and how we have our mindset and our actions without christ this is who we are without christ living in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind guys that's where we were that's why we were lost it's because of the desires of our flesh because of following our hearts here's what it says even about us who who are believers who already we we have new hearts we, we are set free in Christ, and yet even as believers, God allows something of the old self to remain. We, we are instructed to put it to death on a daily basis and just instead put on the new self and walk with Christ. And even to us who are, are saved, it says this in James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By Satan? By God? No, he says when each person is enticed by his own desire. By the desires of our own hearts. Then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And people would say, but what about the desires that I have? If I didn't choose those desires, if I was born with them, if they were built into me, then is that not the design of God? If I don't follow the desires of my heart, Does that not then deny what God has created me to be? And here's what the Bible would say to that. In 1 John 2, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here's the way that Jesus put it. I should clarify Every bit of scripture that we read is the way that Jesus puts it. (laughs) Here is how Jesus was quoted in his earthly ministry in Matthew 15. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. These things come out of the heart. What's the reason for that? Number two on your bulletin. The reason is failure to worship God in spirit and in truth. Here's verse 25. It says, because. He already gave us a because, because he started with a therefore in verse 24. So you can look back at what's before, but he's making it very clear in verse 25. Here is the reason. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I love how even as Paul is describing the depth of the depravity of mankind, He just can't help but to break out into worship right there. He says, the creator God is blessed forever. Amen. That is the beautiful thing that God allows us by his spirit, graciously gives us to cry out from our hearts as those who have been redeemed, who have been born again, who trust in Jesus, is that we can now look to God and from the heart cry out to him in spirit and in truth, Abba father and love him and shout god is blessed forever amen amen jesus said the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him not just an external worship not just a going through the motions but an actual from the heart from the spirit and speaking the truth with full conviction To worship God and say, I love this God. He is blessed forever. Amen. But before we come to faith in Christ, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And here's what it said earlier in the verse about the normal course of mankind. That's what this is describing. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. At worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, that's what man does. Apart from faith in Christ, there's all kinds of created things to worship. There's obviously sex, it's written right here. There's money, there's power, there's all the sorts of things that you could achieve in this life. There's all sorts of worldly things that you could try to amass for yourself. There's also the worshiping of created things in things like worshiping nature. You say to yourself, well, we're too enlightened of a society to worship nature. I don't think so. I hear things on the radio and, and, and on TV. Well, I don't watch a lot of TV anymore, but I hear things on the radio all the time about how our environment needs to be sustained to the point that it would be better for humans not to be there. You may think that that's extreme, but did, did you know that, uh, that, that a couple of British royals were recently given an award for choosing to have only two children? Because they were preserving the environment by keeping so many people out of it? You don't, do we not see? That, that is, that's nature worship. I'm not telling you to go and dump oil into a stream or something like that. We take care of the earth. but We don't worship the earth. We don't act like there is... Uh, I, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent, all right? But this is just to say that there is nature worship all around us. If you don't, if you don't uh, see that kind, well... Guys, there's, there's people all over the place who will tell you we are stardust. That's how we came about. That God is not eternal and creator, that the universe itself is eternal. That there is no God. You know what that is? That is worship of the sun and the moon and stars and the creation. So it's all over the place, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But you know where this came from? Verse 25, exchanging the truth about God for a lie exchanging the truth about God for a lie you know where the first time that that happened was It's in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3 I mean God, God gave this command to Adam in Genesis two sixteen, you may surely eat of any tree in the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat here's the truth of God for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die there's God's statement it is true You know what Satan did? He came in and he said in Genesis 3 4, You will not surely die. Do you know what Adam and Eve did? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And why did they do that? It's because that fruit was pleasing to the eye and and they could see the benefits that they would have from it. They thought, they believed Satan's lie. Well, God is just trying to hold you back from all of these good things that will happen. If you do this, but the truth of God is, you will surely die. Do you know the reason why human beings love to pursue wrong thinking and love to make it seem intellectual and high-class? It's because it is convenient for sin. It's because it is not comfortable to say, "You will surely die. It is so much more comfortable to say, we'll just let it slide. Guys, there are false gospels that are preached out there that exchange that truth of God for that very lie. Back when this church was part of the American Baptist Churches of New Jersey, I heard I'm, there, there are some faithful churches and pastors within that denomination, but I heard preached several times within that denomination, this false gospel, it goes something like this. Sure, there are sins that are spoken of in the New Testament that our culture embraces right now, especially sins having to do with sexuality. Sure, those are spoken of as sins, but God is gracious. We believe that Jesus died for sinners, that God forgives sinners. And because of that, we don't need to really say anything about this. We don't need to keep anybody out of membership on the basis of their physical behaviors That God is so good that they will not surely die, is how I would summarize that. Guys, that is not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is here. Sin is so serious and so deadly that the only way for it to be forgiven is the death of the Son of God on the cross in our place. And when we look to Jesus and believe in Him, part of that believing is to know my sin was so serious that the wages of sin is death. And as I embrace the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, I no longer love my sin. That's called repentance. That false gospel, whether it was preached by Satan in Genesis 3, or whether it was preached by very nice people in a beautiful ballroom in New Brunswick. Whichever one it is, it is a false gospel. It is a lie. Satan says, you will not surely die. And Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We cannot preach a gospel without repentance, or it is not the gospel. We can't exchange the truth about God for a lie, but that's what led to it. And then Paul goes into the clearest example of this. He holds this up as the clearest way that you can see that the path of the world that the path of the lost unregenerate heart goes deeply into sin is homosexuality that's what he holds up as the clearest example let's read these verses in verses 26 and 27 he says for this reason god gave them up again that's that giving up into judgment just like one enemy defeat or one nation defeating another nation God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Now, it doesn't mean that those are not sincere and authentic passions. That those are not sincere and authentic desires of the inner self, but they are dishonorable and destructive. He says, gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And what, I think what he means by the due penalty for their error is this is clearly wrong and they are clearly headed toward destruction in this behavior. That's what the Bible is saying there. He holds it up as the clearest example. He holds it up starting with what we call natural law. Natural law is where we can look at nature... And the way that nature runs, and we can tell from the way that God has set up creation that things are supposed to go a certain way. That's what Paul is talking about when he says natural relations. They exchange natural relations. Men exchanged, gave up natural relations. This means that everybody in the world knows in an obvious way, even if we have been trained to suppress this knowledge even if we've been trained with all kinds of philosophical reasons to ignore this knowledge, we know just from the way that God has set up nature that homosexuality is sinful because we can look and we can say a mother and a father have a baby and a father and a father do not and a mother and a mother do not. And we can see that other kinds of relationships are not a product of God's design of the natural world. They're a product of something else. Paul was holding this up, not because he felt like that he had to prove that this is sin. You have to understand, Paul is not out to prove that this is sin. He is writing knowing that it is obvious that it's sin. He is holding this up as the most obvious, clearest example that everybody gets. Saying this ought not to be done. This is wrong. This is against nature. This is destructive. It is obvious. And if it's not obvious to us, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. You might not realize just how deeply the world has fed your mind if it's not obvious. But guys, we don't need to worry that the Bible doesn't really teach this. It's, it's one of the weirdest things. We, we've got to say this up front. The Bible clearly says that homosexuality is sin. And it's very bizarre that in, in recent decades, there have been some who have claimed to discover within the text of the Bible what nobody ever discovered in the previous 2,000 years, which is, well, actually, these condemnations of homosexuality are commendations of it. And, and they say, well, go and do it the right way, in the way that honors God. Well, guys, no, it, it says what it says, and it's it, pretty clear, and it's pretty obvious. And if, if you hear these arguments, because I know they're out there. I know a lot of you guys have heard them. Some of you asked me about them at various times. These arguments, well, maybe there's this particular Greek or Hebrew word that if you really look deeply into the definition of this word, then it's actually not condemning that. And if you just really understood that secret knowledge within Greek or Hebrew, then you would get that what your English Bible says is, is, is completely the opposite of what the Bible meant to say. No. <laughs> for one thing, that's, that's not how languages work. That's just, just, if you're looking for some secret within the original languages that's going to completely change the meaning of your English Bible, then you don't understand how language works. That's just not how it works. But I will tell you one thing about the way that Paul wrote this in Greek that I think is going to point us to something that we ought to already be thinking of, which is that when he uses the word women, and when he uses the word men... He uses words that are not the usual words for them, and the reason I think he does that is because he picked instead the words for women and the words for men that are found in the Greek version of Genesis 1:27. I think we are called here to think of God's design from Genesis 1:27, and here's what Genesis 1:27 says: So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That male and female, he created them. Those are the words that Paul is using here. God's creation design is very simple. It is male and it is female. Now, Jesus acknowledges, as Jesus said, there are some who are born eunuchs, which may have to do with something of the physical abnormalities that sometimes occur in those male and female organs. The Bible acknowledges that. It says that it is God, uh, God's design when someone has those malformations. But that doesn't take away the two categories that God has made us in, which is male and female. And it's clear. And a rebellion against the creator so often comes out as a rebellion against the creation and how God has made the creation, how he has announced it from Genesis forward, and how as obvious to the world, even even the unbelieving world, just looking at creation, is that there is male and there is female. That's how God has done it. Now, in our own culture, you get way more categories than that, don't you? Way more categories than that. The number of categories is growing all the time. It started out a few decades ago that there was an L that was out there and there was a G that was out there. And then in the 1980s with the AIDS crisis, the L and the G joined forces. And then they brought in a B, and then they brought in a T, and now they've added a Q and an I and an A and a plus sign. And just looking over, over one advocacy website online, I found that this was LGBT. I Q A P D, which I can definitely not remember. All right, and then and then I found a description on a, a university website of here's how we should understand gender: that, that there are five categories within gender. There are sex assigned at birth, gender expression, gender identity, physical attraction, and emotional attraction. And then within each of those five categories, there are three more categories, which are Female, male, or other. Now, when you get five categories of three each and you multiply that out, that gives you a minimum of 243 possible combinations. Then you add in what else could be involved in the other, and the number is going to go way up from 243. And then you add in the reality that there's going to be more categories coming. There will certainly be more categories coming. If you, if you, um, I'm, I'm not going to tell you all the possibilities that I can see coming right now. I just don't want to list them. But there's more categories coming. You know the categories that God made? Male and female. Very simple. It's very simple. Now, how can it be, though, that I think probably all of us, we, we have people in our lives that we know, that we love, that we care about, who put themselves in various other categories And sometimes, the temptation, I'd say often the temptation is to say, I must adjust what I believe in order to accommodate the fact that I love this person. Guys, that's not love. That's not love. We don't want to downplay the love that we have for these people, but we can't be deceived just because we know someone and love someone, maybe have someone in our families who's very close to us who would find themselves and identify themselves in these other categories. And we would say to ourselves, how could it be that this person, who is so moral in so many ways, who is so kind and so nice, who writes me nice notes, how could it be that this person would be in a pattern that the Bible says is headed for destruction? Well, here's Proverbs 14.12. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way to death. It's normal. It's to be expected. That for every single one of us, apart from Christ, that there will be ways that seem right to us, but their end is destruction. And just because the world would identify a particular category of that and say this one is off limits doesn't mean that it stops being true. It's still true. Now some would say, well, Jesus never spoke about homosexuality. Well, that's ridiculous. That is, that is ridiculous. Now, of course, like I said earlier, every bit of the Bible is the word of Christ. But even within the direct quotations of Jesus from his ministry, he said things like this. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh and what therefore God has joined together and let not man separate. Guys, guys, God said here is God Jesus said here is God's design It is male and female coming together in marriage for a one flesh lifelong union that is God's design There are lots of ways to go away from that But Jesus is saying this is the one and the only one that God has created that God has ordained Another way is that Jesus said out of the heart come evil thoughts murder adultery and sexual immorality which was a term that covered all of the sins of Leviticus 18. And you might want to write down Leviticus 18. Whenever the Bible in the New Testament uses the term sexual immorality, that is a summary statement for the sins of Leviticus 18. And there's a lot of sins that are listed out there that Jesus did not specifically name in his ministry, but I'm sure that we would all understand Jesus was speaking against when he said that kind of immorality. And among them is homosexuality. You'll also find that given the current culture's attitude toward these issues, there's a lot more of the sins of Leviticus 18 that are headed our way for us to call to accept that the culture still doesn't accept yet. And yet God has created one and only one path of this physical romantic expression, which is in the bond of marriage between one man and one woman. Now, if you want to read more about this, uh, there's a book that's back there in our book nook. We've got a couple of copies of it called What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality? It's by Kevin DeYoung. It is excellent. But uh, I I want to just say this. There there was a lady that I I was was sharing the gospel with her a couple weeks ago, and uh, first time I had ever met her, and she was asking me something about our church, and, and she asked me this question. She said, are you against gays? What an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, how, how do you answer that? Because I think what she's really asking is, do we think that homosexuality is sin? And the answer to that is, yeah, because the Bible says it, and, and we embrace what the Bible says. But that's the way that the world perceives it. Are you against these people? Are you against these people? So I wasn't sure how to answer that. I told her if you're... If you're asking whether or not we we say it's sin, well, yeah, we we do. And you you need to know that we're also against all sin. Here's the thing that the world doesn't realize. When they look at churches like ours and they say that church is bigoted for being against this sin, for claiming that people cannot go to heaven unless they repent of this sin, I don't think they realize we literally think everybody is going to hell for their sin unless they repent of it and turn to Jesus in faith. And that includes us before God did that for us. So in that sense, I guess by her terms of that question, we're against everybody. (laughs) But we're also for everybody. Because God hasn't just given us his law that condemns, he's also given us his gospel that saves. And Jesus was the one who sat down with tax collectors and sinners and was accused by the Pharisees of being on the side of sinners because he told them, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Did you hear that? He wasn't sitting down and eating with tax collectors and prostitutes in order to endorse their sin. He was sitting down and eating with them in order to show that he cared about redeeming them and to call them to life, which involves repentance of sin which comes by faith in Jesus Christ. We're to come to Christ and repent of sin, so I guess you could say we're against everybody in the law and we're for everybody in the gospel. But you need to know that the gospel involves repentance. Repentance. Christian. Some some of you in here are just absolutely delighted at how clearly I'm speaking against the sin of homosexuality today. And if that's the case, I want to call you not to be a hypocrite. Okay? No, we don't want anybody to be a hypocrite, but today I was especially thinking of this. Especially not in the area of sexual sin. Right? It is possible for you to stand up and cheer and be so, so happy when someone speaks against homosexuality but then in the dark corners of your life that you haven't let the light of Christ shine into yet, for you to be hiding your own sexual immorality, for you to be gratifying your your flesh outside of the bounds of marriage, for you to be indulging in the lust of your eyes and where you would point those eyes and the thoughts that you would indulge. And I want to know this too. Christian, are you so numb to sexual immorality, that you're willing to watch it play out in movies and TV shows and just consider it entertainment. Maybe you're even so numb to it that you think that you're the kind of person who is just so strong that you can set those things in front of your face and they don't affect you, which means you have grown very numb to it. Very numb. You know what we need to do? We need to repent of that. We need to root this out of our life. If you can cheer when somebody speaks against homosexuality, but you have not put away the indulgence of your own flesh, you are dangling from a dangerous cliff, and you need to get this taken care of. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, here's the solution, point four in your bulletin. The solution is forgiving, forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. Sinners need to be forgiven and cleansed of unrighteousness. Here's some bad news, followed by some good news. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. i got to tell you, there is constant deception flowing at us about this all the time. But do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the good news. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow, do you hear that? Now that doesn't mean we, all of us wish that God would immediately remove all of our temptations as soon as we came to faith in Christ. Wouldn't that be amazing? And we know that that's not God's will for us. That our temptation to sin will not be removed until we're in the presence of Christ in heaven. That's one of the things I'm most looking forward to in heaven. Not even wanting even a little bit to sin. But right now we continue to deal with temptations, but that still is within the context for us who come to faith in Christ that we have been forgiven and we have been washed and we have been cleansed. Whereas before we might have just said, well, this is just who I am. Get over it. We now say, I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. I want to be conformed to Christ. I want to be washed, sanctified, justified, and it comes by faith in Jesus. That is the moment that you believe, no matter what kind of sin, sexual or otherwise, you have had in your life, it is forgiven. You are counted as righteous before God because of the righteousness of Jesus. Because his death has paid your penalty and his life is now your life. And as we keep walking through this life, we walk through what is called Sanctification. And you know what? Sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it's hard. Some of you would say to yourself, Well, there is sin that I have been trying to root out of my life for 20 years and it's not gone. Guys, you need to go to Christ. You need to go to Christ. You need to believe 1 John 1 9 that I quote all the time. If we confess our sin, that includes anything that the Bible talks about that is sin, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And listen to the second part. And to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Oh, that's beautiful. Such were some of you, but you were washed. It's by faith in Christ. Part of the way that he does that, part of the way that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, is that we beat our bodies into submission. That's the way Paul described it. We we flee from sexual immorality, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If your right eye causes you to sin, Matthew 5, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus is not saying that cutting off your right hand will cause you to stop having those desires. He's saying take extreme measures. And take those extreme measures to be the gift of God's grace to root sin out of your life. Romans 13, 14 says this. Even as the world would tell you that you're supposed to be your true self and to follow your heart and be authentic to what's in your heart, here's what God says. Put on, not yourself, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you've got an area of your life where you're making provision of the flesh... You know that if you just took that one more painful step to come into the light, to confess your sin, to get it out there, to take real radical steps, but but you're not going to take it. Because all this time you've said to yourself, but I just, I kind of am comfortable with that dark corner in my closet. And I don't want to go there, but I'm going to leave it there just in case. This says, no, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put it away. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified with the flesh and its passions and desires, it says in Galatians 5. Including your old, authentic, genuine self that the world tells you, be your beautiful self, express it. He says, crucify it. Crucify it with its passions and desires. Walk by the Spirit. And not by the desires of the flesh. Now I've got a book recommendation for you. I've already given you two book re- This is a third book recommendation in one sermon. You're getting all kinds of stuff out of this. There's a book called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. And I want to say to you men especially. If there is something hidden in the dark corner of your closet having to do with this. Whether it's what you have been looking at on the internet. Or anything else having to do with this. Come talk to me. I want to be your pastor. Tell me about this. Confess your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all righteousness and let's go through that book together and let's root this out of your life. Women, you got something in your dark corner. Go to one of the faithful older women in this church and say, this is the struggle that I have. This is what's going on. In fact, it might not be the struggle you have because you might not be struggling against it. You might just be Disobedient. But go and confess and get this out there. Don't stay in the darkness. Get in the light and say, I am repentant. We need to repent of our sin, confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us Christ. Lord, we, we have seen today something of the depth of depravity that is natural to our hearts that were, was part of our being children of wrath like the rest of mankind before you you brought us to faith in Jesus and made us born again. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of the grace of God in Christ poured out in the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would pour that out more and more. I pray for those today who are lost in their sins, who maybe are still convinced that... They need to search their inner self and just do whatever their self tells them to do. God, I pray then that you would, that you would drive them to the arms of Christ and not give them over into the lusts of their hearts to impurity. I pray that you'd save them today by the grace of Jesus. And God, for us who are in Christ, I pray that you would root this, these sins out of our lives. I pray that you'd use the means that you've given us of being in the word and in prayer and especially the accountability that you've given to us in the church and the help that we have to bear each other's burdens as Christians. Lord, would you just root these things out of our hearts and our lives and our church. And God, even as the world would look to what I have said today and call us bigots, Lord, give us the grace to stand on the beautiful truth of the word of God and rejoice in it. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.